Hello, everybody. Welcome to the fourth week of the Theology on Tap summer series, Make All Things New. I'm Patrick Crash, and this is my wife, Rachel. And so, uh, I don't know, I don't see Melanie Heine out here this week again, but she's the one who encouraged me to start with a joke every week. So I've got another church-related joke for you today. Hopefully this one's better than last time. You guys have been a tough crowd. <laughs> but uh, so there was a group of people, and they were up in, he- well, not in heaven yet, but waiting at the pearly gates, and St. Peter was there. And he was asking all of them what they did to deserve to go into heaven. And he got a lot of generic responses. You know, I said my prayers every day. I did some good works. And St. Peter just wasn't very impressed. And so he said, hey, can somebody give me anything specific? And so one man stepped forward and he said, well, I was in the Black Hills with my family. And there was a biker gang. And they were picking on this beautiful young lady. And they were harassing her. And so I went over there. And I found the leader of their crew, the biggest one. And I identified him. And uh I told him that he needed to stop, and he said, well, what are you going to do to make that happen? And he punched, so, so he went ahead and punched him in the face, pulled out his nose ring, tackled him to the ground, and then I told the rest of the gang, they'll have to get through me if they want to keep harassing this young lady. And St. Peter was really impressed. He's like, wow, when did that happen? He said, about five minutes ago. <laughs> well, anyways, uh, glad to see everybody out here, and uh, some new faces out here as well, too, so... Um, it's uh, been a great series so far, and we've got a great speaker tonight. So I'll let uh, Rachel take it over from here. So, so far in the series, we have talked about renewal of relationship, renewal of vision, renewal and rest. And tonight, we're going to dive deep into renewal of heart. Um, throughout the series, we've been asking for the intercession of St. Teresa of Avila, the patron saint of renewal. Please make sure you've signed in using the QR code. So you probably did that at welcome table, but it's also on um, all the tables here. So if you haven't done that, be sure to so that you have access to the prayer and the discussion questions for later. Um, At this time, we'd like to invite forward Father Patrick Hake to lead us in the prayer. Good evening, everyone. It's a very important job. So the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord, we are your people, the sheep of your flock. Heal the sheep who are wounded. Touch the sheep who are in pain. Clean the sheep who are soiled. Warm the lambs who are cold. Help us to know the Father's love through Jesus the shepherd and through his spirit. Help us to lift up that love and show it all over this land. Help us to build love on justice and justice on love. Help us to believe mightily, hope joyfully, Love divinely. Renew us that we may renew the face of the earth. St. Teresa of Avila, pray for us. Thank you, Father Patrick. Um, Just a few announcements about food and drink. Um, So if you have not gotten a drink, bar service will run through the evening until 9 p.m. Lots of options back there. We have soft drinks for $2.00. Beer for three to four dollars, wine for five dollars, and mixed drinks are nine dollars. Food is also available for only six dollars a plate. I see a lot of people with food, Um, and that's thanks to a generous donation from the Knights of Columbus. It's not just six dollars you get one plate. You can actually go back and get as much as you want. So be sure to take us up on that. And so uh, tonight for Renewal of Heart, we'll be hearing from Father Tom Shoemaker. And uh, so he's going to be 
talking about how the loss of community and access to the sacraments might have affected our relationships with Jesus. So how can we renew our hearts and ignite them with passion for our faith? So a little bit about Father Tom. He is a native of Gas City, Indiana, and he attended St. John's Seminary in Brighton, Massachusetts, and was ordained a priest in 1990. So before he was a priest, he worked as a dentist, and as a priest, he has served as associate pastor of St. Matthew's Cathedral in South Bend from 1990 to 1998, and then served as pastor at St. Henry and Sacred Heart Parishes in Fort Wayne, 98 to 2001, and then he was at St. Jude's from 2001 to 2013, St. Therese in South Bend, 2013 to 2016, and ever since then, he's been at St. Charles uh, since 2016. So uh, aside, aside from uh, being a good pastor, he has many talents as well, and he is a hobbyist carpenter. So let's welcome uh, Father Tom Shoemaker. Thank you. Maybe a little more information than you really needed. That's good. <laughs> First off, I want to mention, um, I'm a big fan of the Olympics, and I was surprised to see this many of you show up tonight. So uh, I'm too old. I'm never going to compete in the Olympics, but I'm competing with them tonight, and it's good to see that you're all here. So I saw in the, the news that Simone Biles is out of things, so maybe that's why everybody's here. So uh, Renewal of heart. I think before we get to the renewal, we need to take a look at what it is we're renewing. We need to kind of start from the beginning. So I'm going to start with a, with a very old story. Um, a story that took place back when I was in the seminary, so this is 30 years ago. Uh, I was at my parents' house in Lafayette. Uh, my parents are out in the country. They've got a row of apple trees across the back of their property. Uh, and I was out one day trimming the apple trees. I was, was sawing the limbs and had a big pile where I was burning. I was, was, was trimming the trees and, and getting them ready for the year. Uh, across the back of the property, there's a fence. And pretty soon, I heard two young kids, our neighbors, shouting at me. Uh, Mark and David, ages five and seven, okay? Uh, these little kids are very curious, cute little kids, very curious, and they started asking questions. Uh, what are you doing over there? Uh, why are you doing that? Why does your fire keep going out? So I kept explaining what apple tree trimming was all about until they lost interest and started moving on to other things. And they moved on. They had question after question after question while I was trying to work. Uh, how far can you throw a mud ball? They, they shouted at me. Have you ever driven on a corn picker? They asked me. And then they moved on to even, even biblical topics. Um, do you know the difference between a leper and a leopard? Uh, I was doing pretty well with all these questions until these little guys dropped the bomb. They yelled across the fence, Tom, are you saved? This is coming from a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. So I took the best course of action and ignored them. I just kept on working. I thought, I'm not getting into theology with a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. But they weren't giving up. Tom, are you saved? They yelled it across the fence more than once. Now, I was in theology at that time. I was studying soteriology. I was studying all the church documents and church theology kind of things. Um, so I started thinking about all that and started thinking about my baptism, started thinking about... Um, my last confession and my examination of conscience. Started thinking about all those things. I thought I got to come up with the best answer I can for this five-year-old and this seven-year-old. Uh, so I finally turned and said, gee, I hope so. Uh, that didn't satisfy. What do you mean you hope so? Either you're saved or you aren't. Well, there you go. Then they said, do you know what it means to be saved? 
Now, this is a five-year-old and a seven-year-old questioning me. I said, well, I guess it means you go to heaven someday. And they said, yeah. Tom, when were you saved? And I got to thinking of Jesus on the cross. I got to thinking of Gethsemane. I got to thinking of, of, of the Last Supper. I got to thinking of that empty tomb. I got to thinking, and my baptism along with that, thinking when was I saved. So I gave him my best answer. I said, a long time ago. Mark, the five-year-old, responded, David was saved a long time ago, too. I was just saved last December. Now, I'm not here to argue theology with a five-year-old. However, um, there's something beautiful in what these little guys were talking about. Uh, first off, that they're willing to talk with half strangers, I knew them a little bit, across the fence about God, about faith. Uh, these little guys were ready to talk about their faith. Uh, and also something beautiful about it, that they could tell you when they got to know Jesus. Uh, by evangelical or fundamentalist standards, it's coming to know Jesus and accept him as your personal Lord and Savior. And they could tell you exactly when that happened. For Mark, it was last December. Uh, they knew exactly when that happened. Now, I think, although the theology is, is, is really goofy, uh, we're not saved because of something we've done, because we've accepted Jesus. It's, it's Jesus who's saving us. It's coming from him. But I think there's something really beautiful about the person who's able to say, I can tell you when I got to know Jesus Christ. I can tell you when I accepted him and he changed my life. I can tell you when that moment was. Uh, a lot of our evangelical friends can do that. So that got me thinking, when was I saved by their definitions? When did I really come to know God? I was baptized, of course, as a baby and family that went to Mass always. We went to, we used to call them... <laughs> The name has changed. Religious education used to be CCD. Before that, it was catechism. So I went to catechism classes. Um, I lived in a family. We prayed together. We knew the Bible stories and all that kind of stuff. But I knew a lot about Jesus, but I also knew a lot about George Washington. Uh, both of them kind of important figures, but probably not all that much a part of my life until I started looking for the time that I really became a follower of Jesus Christ. And I can tell you when it was. I can tell you exactly when it was. I was in seventh grade. I was 12 years old. Now, another story for you, and this one is, is going to sound as trite and as corny and as goofy as can be, but it's an important story. Seventh grade, Mississinawa East Junior High, um, we had gym class. Gym class was divided up into six-week sessions. Each six weeks, we had to learn a different sport. You learned all the rules, and you learned the best you could do to, to, to do that sport. Uh, we had six weeks for basketball. Uh, I was terrible at it. I was terrible. Uh, I was a shy kid. I was awkward. I was terrible at it, and I just wasn't interested. Uh, so six weeks of playing basketball. At the end of that six weeks period, we had a test, and we got a grade. This is what our grade was going to be based on. Uh, First, we had to stand underneath the basket and th throw three shots up at the basket from right underneath. Well, I missed all three. Uh, then they sent us out five or ten feet and gave us the basket, gave us the ball three more times. I missed three more shots. Uh, then they put us on the free throw line. Uh, free throws are where most people practice. That's where most people are really skilled. I stood on the free throw line. I th missed three more shots. What's going through my head? Gee, I had hoped I could go to college someday. Here go my grades. I'm lost. I'm sunk. I'm making an idiot out of myself to start with, but 
here goes my whole academic career. I'm sunk. Yeah. So I missed three free throws. Then they sent us way out. Uh, what today would be a three-pointer. There, there was no such thing back in those days. That's a new invention. Okay. They sent us way the heck out across the floor and told us to th throw up three more shots. They gave me the ball. I tossed up the first ball hopelessly. And under my breath, I said, Lord, help me. That ball went up. It arced beautifully. It swished down through the net. Uh, I stood there stunned. First off, to think that I had thrown that ball. But secondly, realizing what I had just said. I had just said, Lord, help me. Wasn't thinking about it even. It just came out. Lord, help me, I said. And look what just happened. Uh, that is the point in my life when I realized the creator of the universe is watching me. Uh, the Lord of Lords cares that I'm out here missing all these shots in gym class. Uh, God is watching over me and he's listening. I just said something to God and he just answered me. Uh, I stood there stunned. Um, this was a life-changing moment. Now, it sounds as goofy as can be. Here's a 12-year-old tossing a basketball up. This, this doesn't compare with Moses in the burning bush. Uh, this doesn't compare with Constantine seeing that great cross up in the sky or, or St. Paul knocked down on the ground and left blind. Uh, but a seventh grader in gym class, Mississippi East Junior High, just found out God's right here. And he's looking at me. And he's listening to me. And he's walking with me. It's a life-changing thing. And the more I look back at it, I think it is just as important as Moses in that burning bush. Just as important as that, that cross in the sky with Constantine. Here's the Lord pulling somebody to him. Here's the Lord changing somebody's life. It was a life-changing thing for me. Okay? So, what I think would be a really valuable thing as we stop and consider renewal of the heart is to consider what is it you're renewing. Uh, when have you had an experience of Jesus that changed you? Uh, all of us are changed, of course, in the sacraments. But the sacraments sometimes are provided when we're too little to even know that. Um, when have you had an experience of the Lord that changed your life, that changed your whole way of seeing everything, that changed everything? Uh, this renewal of the heart is going back and seeing where you were and what was happening then. Uh, I stood there stunned. Uh, now, I wasn't bright enough or bold enough to tell anybody about this. It was, was years after it before I ever told anybody about it, but it changed my life. It changed my life, and it's, it put me on a different course than I might have been, okay? So, renewal of the heart. We've got to take a look at that moment when your life was changed by the Lord and see what's it take to get back there again. Most of our life of faith is lived in just routines, uh, and that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a routine involved in getting up and going to Mass on Sundays. You do it week after week. It doesn't take a lot of, of passionate, can't-wait-to-get-there kind of stuff. It's just something you do. Uh, it's a routine for most of us to find that prayer time every day. Maybe it's mealtime or bedtime or whatever time's good for you to pray. That can become a real routine. Um, it can be a real routine to, 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 to do whatever you do, maybe praying a rosary every day or, or maybe watching some kind of a podcast or something or whatever you do as a routine. It's a good thing to live the faith as a routine. There's nothing remotely wrong with that. Uh, that's the way we live our love for other people. Um, your love for your parents, for instance. It's lived in routines. Uh, you don't jump up and down and embrace your parents every time you see them, uh, but they're there for you and you're there for them. 
Uh, you don't write odes to your mother all the time. I mean, maybe on Mother's Day, but not usually. Uh, it's just you do the dishes together and you pick up your laundry for her and you're there for each other. And she's there when you need her. You're there when she needs you. It's just a lot of routine. Uh, our life of love, our life of commitment is lived in all kinds of routines. Uh, and so it is with our faith life. Um, we live in routine with our God. Uh, most of our faith life is lived in routines, and that's good. That's a good thing. Uh, it's a comfortable thing. It's when we come close to God and he's part of our lives and we live that in routines. But I think sometimes it's good for us to stop and get some passion back in that again. You know, To go back to that minute when you were stunned. To find that time again when, when, when your life was changed by something that God did, some way that God spoke to you, uh, some way that you picked up on God being right there with you. Uh, to go back and find that again, I think, is a powerful thing that we look for uh, and ought to look for. We, we'd like to have that as much as we can. Okay, So, renewal of the heart. How do you how do, you do that? Uh, how do you get back to that moment when you found out that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, uh, to that moment when he changed your life? Uh, Lots of different ways for lots of us. Um, you might, for instance, come to a talk like this and hope that somebody's going to say something wise, okay? Uh, this might be a kind of a, a, an event where you might hope to be have that spark kindled a little bit. Um, it might be something you do through reading books. Uh, maybe you've got a fra- favorite author, a Henry Nouwen or a Matthew Kelly or somebody that you read that, that really, really opens your eyes and really gives you a little bit of, of extra extra jolt there as, you, as you're thinking about your faith a little bit. Um, it might be something you do uh, with, a, with a CD that you listen to or, or a, a, a podcast or something that you listen to or listen to Redeemer Radio, listen to some speaker who's really going to excite you and really light that spark once again. Uh, it might be something you do with, with music, uh, sitting and listening to some music that really touches you, that really reaches your heart and brings you to God. Um, some kind of sacred music or some kind of music that brings you to God. It uh, might be something with art. Um, if you've got, a, a, you've got some paintings or some pictures of, of, of famous paintings of, of the Lord and his life, uh, just gazing on them and, and praying with that, or uh, in the Eastern tradition with icons, gazing on those icons and praying with it. We're always looking for something that's going to get that spark going again. Uh, it's good to live our faith in routines, but we'd sure like more than that. We'd like to get that spark going again. So looking for some kind of way of getting that spark is an important thing. Uh, For some people, it's finding the right place to be, the right place to pray. Um, For some people, it's a cemetery, uh, going out and to the grave of somebody you've loved and and being there, just spending time there and and praying there. Uh, For some people, it might be a, a home where you grew up, uh, even though you don't know the people who live there, just parking in front and just kind of remembering and praying and, and, and being there with God or, or a place where your grandparents used to live and you've got all those memories as you're parked outside of that house. Uh, for some people, it's big trips. It's, it's, it's Lourdes and Fatima and Medjugorje and all those places. It's, it's going on, on some kind of a big trip to a holy site. Uh, but some people, it's, it's finding the right place to pray. Uh, It's finding the right place that's going to bring you a little bit closer to God, okay? With that, just a little bit of another story about that, about um, pilgrimage, uh, finding the place to pray. Um, Years ago, 1997, uh, I did a World Youth Day trip. Have most of you done a World Youth Day trip, or a lot of you? Not very many, just a few. There's one coming up in Lisbon, Portugal. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's coming up, is it another year? 2023, okay, so it's two years away. Okay, yeah. 
but fantastic opportunity. I did the one, I've, I've done three of them, but 1997, uh, the diocese didn't, didn't organize anything, uh, but I had in my parish at the time uh, a parishioner who was a travel agent, and between the two of us, we organized the trip on our own. So uh, we, we had eight kids, the two of us with eight kids made the trip, uh, and we organized what sounded like a fantastic trip. We found that, that um, airfares were cheaper to fly into London, uh, so we went to London, we rented two cars, uh, we drove through the channel, which was just brand new at that time, and then we looped all the way around France. So I think we did 1,500 miles. Uh, and we went to all kinds of sites along the way. We went to Mont Saint-Michel, which is that famous monastery out on a little island in the ocean. Uh, we went to Rouen, went to the place where St. Joan of Arc died. Um, we went to, to Lourdes, we went to... Uh, to Cluny, we went to Avignon, the place where the, the popes used to live, uh, went to Taizé and, and sang with the monks, and finally headed up towards, towards Paris. And I will tell you, as beautiful as that trip sound, sounds, or sounded at the time, it was perfectly awful. Uh, the heat was stifling. Uh, in August, France was 95, 98 degrees every day. We had two cars without air conditioning. We were driving 1,500 miles with cranky kids in the back uh, in stifling heat. Uh, the kids were arguing pretty much all the time. I had two brothers who couldn't get along. We were constantly shuffling them back and forth between the two cars. The kids lost interest in any of these holy sites. Uh, we got to Mont Saint-Michel. They didn't want to go in. Uh, they sat and soaked their feet in the water and didn't even go in. Uh, the trip was perfectly awful. Uh, the other adult along with me, she and I didn't get along so well either. We had some disagreements about how fast we ought to be driving, disagreements about arms and legs hanging out of the car windows, uh, disagreements about how often to stop at the restrooms, you name it. Uh, we got lost every place we went trying to find the hostels where we were staying. Uh, we got in traffic jams, sweltering heat. It was a perfectly awful trip. Uh, we got to Paris, got lost once again, finally found a, a lousy little hostel where we stayed. Uh, we had to walk several miles in that heat, carrying all of our belongings into the park. We got into the park. The, by the time we got there, the portable toilets were already overflowing. The whole place stank. Uh, there wasn't enough room to lay down. Uh, we we're going to have to sleep in the park, but you have to sleep sitting up. There wasn't space. Uh, and it was in sweltering heat and sun. It was a perfectly awful experience until the sun started to go down. We found that we were surrounded by 1.2 million excited young Catholic adults. Uh, and then the music started. People started singing. People started singing with one another. And then the Pope arrived, John Paul II at the time. He was old and he was frail at that time. And the kids loved him. The kids loved him. And it was clear that he loved these young people. Um, it turned into just a, a, one of those renewal of heart splendid moments uh, that, that evening with the Pope. Uh, now, I really think the pilgrimage thing is part of that. Part of the reason that it was so wonderful was because of the week that we just spent. Uh, I think if the Pope had come to Fort Wayne and, and had an event at the Colosseum and we'd all just gone down and walked into the nice air-conditioned Colosseum, it would have been nice, but it wouldn't have been anything like this. Uh, we'd been through a grueling week to get to this. Uh, we'd been through every kind of trial and struggle and, and argument you can imagine to come to this point, and suddenly here we are with all these people, with the Pope, praying, singing together, praying together. Uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful faith event for all of us, and I think partly because we'd been on pilgrimage. Uh, 
partly because it was so tough to get there. Uh, that leading up to it was part of what it took for that renewal of the heart, for, to, to, to really find what we were looking for. Uh, so something I, I suggest on that for all of you is at some point, think about pilgrimage kind of things. Uh, a pilgrimage is not just stopping in a place that's on your way and going into an air-conditioned shrine with a gift shop. Uh, a pilgrimage involves some difficulties in getting there, but that's part of it. That's part of what leads to that beautiful experience that comes with it. So uh, some kind of a pilgrimage might be a, a beautiful thing at some point. Uh, yeah, now, as we're on this this whole theme of, of, of the, the, the travel, let me pull out my lost my there we go we've got too much wind up here to keep this out um, let me share with you too as we're looking at the idea of this this pilgrimage this this looking for something wonderful and going through struggles to get there um, I read a book not too long ago written by a priest his name was um, Jean Bernard uh, he was a priest from Luxembourg uh, arrested by the Nazis back in the 1930s and put into Dachau concentration camp. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the stories from Dachau. It was the first of the concentration camps that the Nazi built, Nazis built, close to Munich, uh, as horrible as a horrible place could be, and it's the place where priests were sent. Um, something that, that, that's not probably widely known, there were three barracks there. Uh, between 1938 and 1945, there were 2,579 priests, seminarians, and monks in that concentration camp, uh, over 2,500. Uh, why? They were considered political dissidents. Uh, they had spoken out against the Nazis. They'd spoken out against the genocide. They'd spoken out in the pulpit against some of the things that they'd seen, uh, arrested and sent off to a concentration camp. Uh, when they arrived in that concentration camp, of course, they were stripped, they were shaved, uh, everything taken away from them, they had nothing. Uh, they were put in these barracks uh, where they had to live in the same kind of squalor and the same kind of, of fear that everybody else did. Um, almost half of them died before that camp was liberated. Um, a few of them were released. This Jean Bernard, who wrote the book I read, was released at one point, but the majority um, who didn't make it to the end died there. Um, horrible stories of the conditions. Uh, no hygiene of any kind, uh, not enough food to eat. It was cold in the winter, it was hot in the summer, forced into labor, um, they had nothing. Um, and as they described this, they said the worst of it was they didn't have the mass. Um, these priests, this whole three barracks full of priests, didn't have the mass. Um, they tried to do it as once in a while on the sly, but it was not easy. Uh, if somebody had enough of the prayers memorized that they could get through it enough to make a valid Mass, uh, that was helpful. They could sometimes keep little bits of bread that they could use. Coming up with wine was a problem. Uh, if you could find a piece of fruit or something and let it ferment, maybe you could come up with something close to wine, but that was a real problem. Uh, for these priests, they described this as being the worst of what they had. They, they didn't have the Mass. Uh, that's what their lives had revolved around as, 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 as priests, and, and now they're without that. Now, the story is interesting. There was a lot of heavy political finagling going on from the Vatican. Eventually, 1940, the Vatican convinced the Nazis to allow these priests at Dachau to have the Mass there. Uh, this was intervention from the Vatican. Uh, they had their first Mass. It was January of 1941, January 21st. Um, they were allowed to have the Mass. Now, 
as you would describe what this mess looked like, to any of us, it would be horrible. Uh, they're in the barrack that stinks. They're surrounded by disease, surrounded by human filth. Uh, they were able to make a little altar out of scraps of wood. They were able to build a little tabernacle even out of scraps of wood. That's what they had. Uh, somebody had given them some kind of a cup that they could use for a chalice. Um, they were given the books that they needed and they celebrated the mass. The Nazis had all kinds of, of regulations. Nobody but the priests were allowed to be there. The other um, prisoners in the camp were not allowed to be there. Lots of Catholics there, but, but none of them were allowed to be a part of this mass. Uh, they started on that day having the mass though. Uh, pretty soon other people were doing whatever they could to be outside the windows so they could hear the prayers at least through the windows. Uh, some of the priests started to smuggle out Holy Communion to others in the camp. Um, having the Mass was central to them. Let me give you a little quotation here that I pulled out uh, from this, this, this Mass taking place in Dachau. We rediscovered the idea of love in the midst of suffering, hunger, egoism, hatred, or indifference, and also a palpable sense of calm, the beauty of the altar. In the midst of our filth and overcrowding, the SS were no longer anything but a sad nothingness beside the splendid immortal reality of Christ. Um, it changed things. It changed things for them. Uh, they had Christ, they had the sacraments, they had the Mass back in their lives again. And even though they were still there, many of them tortured and killed, subject to, to execution on will if one of the guards got mad. Um, even though they were still living in squalor, they didn't have any plumbing, they didn't have any kind of hygiene at all, any kind of privacy at all, they didn't own anything. They had the mass now. And they said it changed everything. It changed everything for them. Uh, having been without the mass for some years before they came back again made all the difference. Um, as much as we th think we appreciate the mass, and we do, it can't compare with this these three barracks full of priests who had to live some years without the mass. Uh, when they came back, they saw it changes everything. Uh, these SS guards are not important. They're, they're, they're people who have got all kinds of problems. God's here with us. Um, all the squalor, all the fear, all the, the violence going on around us, sin of the world, but God's here with us. God's here to save us. God's listening to us. Uh, the creator of the universe is here with us. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords is here with us. It changes everything. It changes everything. Um, and I think somehow being away from that made a huge difference for those priests. Okay? Now, where's this all leading, obviously? Um, pandemic. Back in March a year ago, um, we got news that the COVID virus had hit in Indiana. Uh, we were scared. Um, today, it's easy to look back with all kinds of hindsight and rewrite the story, but if you think back a year and a half ago, think back to that March when we found out that COVID was here, we were scared. Um, I know being at St. Charles, we got word that 20 people had died at Bethlehem Woods Nursing Home. That's exactly two miles from our front door. Uh, it's a small nursing home. 20 people died within a week or so. Uh, this was frightening. This looked like this could be the plague that would wipe out vast portions of our country. Uh, it was a frightening thing. Uh, we didn't know how serious it was going to be, didn't know what numbers were going to look like, didn't know what to expect, but this was frightening. Um, our bishop, consulting with the other bishops in Indiana, consulting with the, the, the public health experts, con consulting also with, with the governor's office and everybody who's trying to see what in the world are we going to do about this, uh, said, 
we can't do public masses. We can't do public masses. It's just too dangerous. You might remember there was one weekend when we were told you had a limit of 250 people could be in your church. Uh, we had to put monitors at the church doors to turn people away. What a sad thing. Um, now, a little church couldn't fit 250 people in it, but a big church, I mean, we were turning people away. Um, and then the following week, we were told no public masses. You've got to close the doors. Uh, as you'll remember, we went nine weeks without any public masses. Uh, we as priests were told that we could have the mass every day, but we did it in the house with the doors locked. We were allowed to have one person there. Uh, I did mass daily in the rectory with one person there. Uh, nine weeks. Uh, you will remember well Holy Week. Uh, Holy Week without the mass. Uh, Holy Week without being at the church on Good Friday. Uh, Holy Week without the washing of feet and the Lord's Supper. Holy Week without the adoration through the night on Holy Thursday. Uh, Holy Week without baptisms and without confirming new Catholics and uh, reading on our own the story of Christ in the empty tomb uh, and not being together as a church for that. Uh, this was horrible. It was painful. Yeah, and I think uh, hopefully everybody remembers it that way. We learned how to do live streaming. Uh, I, I've tried watching a couple of masses on live stream. It's not the same. Uh, it's not the same as being there with other people who are worshiping. Uh, there's no communion, uh, and there's, there's nobody there worshiping with you. You're not expected to sing with everybody else. You're not expected to, to, to greet others and to, to pray with others. It's not the same. Uh, nine weeks without the Mass was a trial for our church. Okay. Eventually, after the nine weeks, we got the word that we could come back, but all kinds of regulations. Uh, everybody wearing a mask, ropes on the pews, everybody spread out. We had the monitor still at the door to turn people away if we had too many people. Um, we had to spread out every way we could. We had to sanitize every surface, get rid of the, the hymnals. We weren't allowed to sing, weren't allowed to do a sign of peace. No uh, precious blood was going to be distributed. All kinds of regulations. Again, we were scared. Uh, this is back when we didn't know where this was going to go, didn't know how far this was going to spread or how dangerous it was. We were scared. Uh, listening to the bishop's direction, we were scared by all this. Um, but we were able to come back for the Mass. Um, one person said, I'm not going to church if I have to wear a mask. I heard a response to that. Somebody said, you could dress me up in a beekeeper suit and I would be back there. Uh, if I have to be head to toe in netting, I'm going. This is the Mass. Um, um, I think for those of us for whom the Mass is important, being back there was more important than anything, uh, even though there were risks involved, and we didn't know how bad the risk was. Uh, we had the Mass once again. Uh, I think as the weeks went by, those regulations kind of lightened. Uh, as the weeks went by, we started doing a little less sanitizing and, and got by with that. Pretty soon, uh, one of the regulations that for me was the greatest was we were allowed to sing once again. Uh, mass without singing is the Mass, but it's a Mass without singing. Uh, I remember the first weekend that the congregation was allowed to sing quietly. We were told we weren't allowed to sing loud, but quietly. Uh, the first weekend was in the middle of January. Uh, I said to my parish, I said, you know, there's something that we missed at Christmas and we just have to do it. And I started a cappella just singing Silent Night. Uh, the whole crowd joined in and there were weeping people. Uh, we needed that. We needed to sing together. We needed to sing God's praises together. Uh, and here we finally had it back again. Uh, same kinds of reactions, I think, 
when we made masks optional, you can see the people around you again. You can see them and speak to them, and, and it's not behind a mask isolated anymore. Um, and the latest, we're doing a sign of peace now again. Um, it's not what it used to be. It's not hugging and shaking and all the rest. Mostly it's bowing and nodding and waving. But at least we're acknowledging the people who are there praying with us. That's part of who we are as a, as a, as a, as a church, as a church family, is, is we're all there together to pray together and to, to be a part of this Mass together. Uh, to have that sign of peace was, was a real renewal again. Uh, a lot of people said it just changes things. Um, we're not back to normal yet, but we're getting closer. Um, now, this pandemic, what do I think, looking back from our stance now? Uh, I think in a lot of ways, there's been something beautiful that's come out of the pandemic. Uh, as awful as it was, and especially if some of you have lost family members or lost loved ones, uh, I, I don't mean to take this lightly. Uh, I've done nine, I think, ten funerals for people who died with COVID. This is nothing to be taken lightly. Uh, but I think when all is done, we're going to see something good that came out of this. Uh, we're going to see that we've hungered for what we took for granted. Uh, maybe kind of like that pilgrimage where it's going through the hard times that make that, that, that goal so beautiful. Um, I never have so much appreciated singing at Mass as I do now. I've never so much appreciated that simple sign of peace as I do now. Uh, and the, coming to Mass itself, for those who have been afraid and have been away and not been able to be there, um, I think there's really a renewal in that as we see what it is we've missed. Um, so looking back at it, awful times, awful things that we, we missed out on and that were, were, were tough to live with, but I think if we look at it through the eyes of hindsight and where we are now, we can see, you know, maybe the Lord was leading us in a way that in the end is going to be kind of beautiful. Uh, maybe a little more respect and, and joy at that Mass. Maybe seeing what it is and how important that is for us. Uh, maybe that renewal of the heart is seeing what that means to us, okay? Um, renewal of the heart. I think it's important for all of us to stop and think, when did you meet Jesus? How did you find that Jesus is really a part of your life and changes everything? How did that change you and when? And, and, and think about that. Think about that. For me, it was standing on a basketball floor stunned. Uh, maybe you've got a story like that. Maybe your story is, is totally different than that. But uh, when did you meet him? And what kind of reaction did you have? We'd love to have that reaction again. Most of our faith life is lived in routine. Most of it is lived by just going to Mass, doing our prayers, uh, doing church ministries, doing whatever we, we, we need to do day by day, and that's perfectly good. But once in a while, we really need to renew that zeal, that, 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 that stunned sense. God's with me. God's walking with me. God is calling me. Uh, the creator of the universe is looking at me. Uh, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings cares that this 12-year-old is missing baskets in the gym floor at Mississauga East. Uh, it's a matter of seeing we've got a God who cares about us and is with us, and it changes everything. Uh, we need once in a while a renewal of heart to spend a little time saying, how do I get that back? How do I get that zest, that spark back again? Okay? So, discussion questions next. Discussion questions start with that question. When did you meet Jesus? When did you find that he's part of your life and that changes everything? Okay? Yep. So spend some time with your questions there. All right, everybody, I hope you're uh, enjoying the discussion with your tables. But now we're going to bring the expert back up to the stage. And if anybody has any questions for Father Tom, then they can come up and uh, ask the question in the microphone over here. And he'll 
do his best to answer it for you. And then in the meantime, if you uh, need to get more drinks, the bar closes at 9, so make sure you do that at this time as well. Not that expert in anything, but if anybody's got questions, yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> I figured I'd get this one out of the way. What's your favorite Olympic event? Oh. Pole vaulting. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> so, Father Tom, if you knew it was someone's birthday today, do you think you'd be okay to sing to them right now? I think that'd be great. Okay, he's currently on the phone right now, so I don't know if he's going to hear us. <laughs> Should we just start? As soon as he's done, we will. Okay. <laughs> now? When he's, okay, he's done. Okay, okay well, next question. Um, so, as priests, it's built, it's built into our schedule to, to, go, to go on retreat yearly. What do you think is appropriate for the lay people to go on retreats, and Ooh. how often and how much time should they do it to rediscover the renewal of heart? Okay. Ooh, that's a great question. Yeah. If you can do it yearly, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Have most of you been on retreat someplace or done, yeah, just getting away, being in a different place and, and um, revitalizes. So, yeah, I'd, I'd recommend yearly. I don't know if there's any rules on it or anything. But. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So uh, I know it was cool to hear a lot of profound stories of people rediscovering their faith or having uh, uh, renewal of heart. What would you say to people who feel like they haven't felt anything like that before? Hmm. And, um, you know, whether that's necessary yeah. for your faith or, yeah. you know, how to maybe put yourself in those kind of situations. Or what would you just, just say to somebody like that in general who feels like they're missing yeah, out on Yeah, that's a great story. Like yeah. For a person who hasn't had that kind of a profound experience. First off, it's a gift from God. I mean, it's it's... Faith is a gift from God, and if the Lord's going to speak to you, He can speak to you. He can do that. Uh, so it's being open to it. But at some point, you wait and hope. So, mm -hmm. yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Best I can do on that. <laughs> you talked about um, that awakening that you had at a pretty young age. Um, however, it took you a long time to become a priest. You became a dentist and other mm -hmm. things like some people here may be thinking about vocation and what was that awakening from a vocation standpoint for you okay. when you became a priest? That's a fair question. I, I worked as a dentist for two years um, and discovered at age 27 that I had pretty much checked off all my goals in life. I, I was 27 and I had my own practice. I was doing well. I had a steady girlfriend. I was had the degree I wanted. I had my own business. I was was doing well with that and had pretty much checked off everything I wanted and I was 27. I thought, well, maybe there's more. <laughs> so I, I just started thinking, someday I'm going to be 90. I'm going to be looking back on my life and saying, what did I do for the world? 
And my answer is going to be, I sure filled a lot of teeth. Um, that's a good answer. That's a good answer. But I had the idea that maybe something bigger. Yeah. So I was 27 before I had any clue that I was going to end up here. I never, nobody ever suggested that I make a good priest and <laughs> never was on my radar. Uh, but it was just at that age asking where's my life going and what am I doing for the world and, 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 and what's the biggest thing I could be doing for the world. Uh, and I will say at this point, just as a priest, that there, there isn't anything bigger. I mean, we stand at the altar and, and consecrate bread, and it becomes the very presence of Christ. Uh, we absolve sin. Uh, we anoint people. We're there with people as they die. Uh, I've held hands with a number of people as they've died. Um, we baptize babies. We bring people to Christ in that. And, uh, there, there, there isn't anything bigger that I don't think I could have ended up with. So, mm-hmm. so it's been a gift. Yep, I still keep my dental license, but I haven't, I haven't drilled a tooth in 25 years. <laughs> yep. Um, have you noticed more people coming back and like talking to you about you know missing it and? Like, yeah, the mess. You know, I would say at St. Charles, our numbers are looking pretty much very similar to what they were before the pandemic. Uh, that's been a scary thing for everybody, thinking all these people who have got a whole year of routine of not going to church, are we ever going to see them again? Uh, but our numbers are looking good, so not as good as they should be, but, but they're, they're coming back, so I'm optimistic about it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that experience with most parishes? Are you seeing numbers are looking pretty good at this point? Or? And maybe I'm too optimistic on it, but I'm... Yeah. We're not ready yet, are we? <laughs> yes. So um, I was actually raised Protestant and recently confirmed in April oh, um, as Catholic. Yeah. So, <laughs> so um, you mentioned evangelicals before yeah. uh, earlier during your talk, um, and evangelizing is still something that is uh, important to me. Um, However, I feel like I'm better equipped now to be able to do that in the first place. But when it comes to renewal of heart, like renewal of our hearts, right? Us and Jesus, renewal of our hearts. But what would you say about how the renewal of heart can impact then your ability to assist and let God help work through you to renew someone else's heart? Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. That's the whole thing with with evangelization. At some point, it's the Holy Spirit who's got to touch that person. It's not me. It's it's somehow the Holy Spirit's got to touch that person. But but letting that person see the beauty of what's available, I think. Uh, if somebody can see that, that your your faith life really is empowering you and really is bringing you peace and really is driving you, there, there, there's there's a strong witness in that. Um, you can encourage and you can pray for them and you can be a witness. But at some point, it's got to be the Holy Spirit who touches somebody. So uh-huh. at some point, we have to stand back and be quiet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts? Yep. Father Tom's my boss, if you didn't know that. (laughs) Father Tom, do you have a specific encounter that you had as a young adult that you want to share about? Like, did you have any specific moment? Um, I know you shared you felt the call or whatever at 27, but like when you really encountered Christ as a young person, other than the seventh grade moment. Yeah. And, you know, I would say going to college, um, 
when I went to college, I was homesick, but the church was where I found my home. Uh, going to Mass on Sundays in college, that's where I found I belonged and I fit in, and it was, it was, it was where I belonged. Yeah. Huh? Okay. Wabash College. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. It was the the mass. There was was they've got a very small little house where they had the mass. It was sitting on the floor. They didn't have much furniture. Had a wobbly little wooden chapel and a wooden table. We had chili after mass was over, but it, it was sitting on the floor and strumming with guitars. And it was uh, same guys week after week. And that's where I was home. That's that's where I belonged. And and it got me through the homesickness because I knew that's that's where I belonged. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Others. Good. It's not my birthday. Close. <laughs> uh, okay, so I got two questions. First one. So after you made the first three pointer, what happened to your other two three pointers? I don't even remember. <laughs> I I doubt that they were good. I don't remember. I thought so because I'm like, oh, surely God's gonna help <laughs> you with the other them. two, right? Okay. <laughs> Uh, so serious question. So you've been talking a lot about renewal of heart and something that like I feel a lot with my faith is like almost every day it's like I have to start over again and like kind of learn like, oh, how do I keep God and Jesus like at the center of my life despite the fact that like the world is trying to tear me apart from it. Yeah. So like what what is your advice to like that? Yeah. And just the basic thing is having a prayer life, you know, right. having some time during the day that's spent with him. Uh, that centers your day. So, uh-huh. Yeah. And I would say first thing in the morning is, 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 is the best thing in the world. Just some, some time that centers who you are and what you're about and where you're going. Um, yep. Mm -hmm. you share with us your most recent renewal of heart? Oh. Most recent renewal of heart. That's, let me think for a minute on that one. Well, yeah, I've, I, I have had a couple of tough funerals in the last in the last couple of weeks. So we do a lot of funerals at St. Charles. I had a funeral today for a 97-year-old lady and it was, was, was not a tough funeral. But once in a while you get ones that are. You get somebody who's died young or somebody who's died unexpectedly and some, some tough ones. Um, and, and there's just something profound in that because you gather with a family who needs prayer. You gather with a family that knows they need the Mass. Uh, you know you need what you're going to be fed at that table. And, and um, yeah, there's something really profound in that. Mm -hmm. Hard funerals are, are profoundly prayerful. Yeah. Others. This is quite a phone call going on over here. Should we interrupt him? <laughs> Good. Good. Another brave soul. Thanks. What's your favorite activity to do on vacation? Oh, <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, 
I, I take odd vacations, so I, I go to odd places and, and um, yeah, I mean odd. I mean, <laughs> Mongolia? <laughs> Anybody here been to Mongolia? <laughs> yeah, I go to odd places. A lot of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've done some good adventures for vacations. I don't like uh, sitting on beaches and I don't like golf and I don't like shopping and I don't want to do cruises and fancy hotels and all that. So usually it's backpacking someplace interesting. So, uh-huh. Yep. During COVID, when you really couldn't do anything, couldn't go any place, uh, I did some backpacking in the mountains in, in Pennsylvania. I did about a 50-mile trail carrying my, my food and my tent and everything. Yep. So you talked about getting lost at World Youth Day with the young people. Yeah. Have you gotten lost on other occasions on your travels? Many, <laughs> is many. It, yeah. Is it a, uh, a frequent experience for you? It is, of course. <laughs> yeah. You, you can elaborate if you want. Or not. <laughs> Stacy knows one of my stories. <laughs> okay, here we go. <laughs> I was 21, I think. Um, um, my brother was... was uh, exchange student in France in, in Besançon. Uh, we pronounce it. We pronounce it Besan. Wait a minute, Besançon. They say Besançon, but it's it's on the, the Swiss the Swiss border of, of France. So anyway, 21 years old. I decided at Christmas time to go over and spend some time with him. So I had all my stuff. I got the flight over to Paris. Uh, I had a, a Eurail pass, which you can get on any train in Europe with it for so many days. Uh, however, somebody's got to endorse that pass before you start. I couldn't find anybody in the airport. Went to the bus station or the train station. Couldn't find anybody. So I took the first train to a little town, thinking I'd get out there and get somebody to endorse my pass. There was nobody. Went to the next little town, the next, and the next. Anyway, I end up at 10 o'clock at night in the snow, out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of France, by myself, with on a train, and nobody else is on this train. The train went about 100, 100 yards down the track, stopped, and the lights went out. So it turned out the train was just parking for the night. So I headed up to the front of the train. Uh, the conductor was surprised to see anybody on this train and, and yelled at me, Marche, Marche, get out of here. Uh, so I had to walk back to the train station. Got back to the train station in the snow, um, and there was still a guy at the, at the ticket booth. He was working with a couple ladies there. So I went up and I asked him, are there any hotels in this town? In my best French, of course. Um, he said, just a minute, and he called these two ladies over. There were two ladies in the train station, 10 o'clock at night, with bright red, orange dyed hair, fur coats, and lots of makeup. Um, so he called them over <laughs> and explained in French that I needed help. <laughs> so the two ladies said to me, why don't you come with us? <laughs> well, it was either that or sleep on a park bench in the snow. <laughs> so I got in the car with these two ladies. Um, they, they, took, <laughs> they took me across town. They took me to this, this, this little bitty hotel. Uh, I went into the hotel and asked, do you have a room? And they said, no. So I went back out and told the ladies they don't have any room. So they discussed a little while. They said, well, maybe that's because you're a foreigner. So they took me to another hotel, and they went in to ask if there was a room, and they said no. So then there was a discussion in the car, and they said, well, why don't you come home with us? <laughs> well, it was either that or let them let me out on the side of the road in the snow. So I went home with these two ladies. Uh, what I discovered was, 
first off, the bright orange hair and lots of makeup and fur coats, that's just the fashion in France. That's the way they dress. Uh, yeah. But what I found was, <laughs> when I got to their home, th these two ladies were both wives and mothers, and the two families were having dinner together that night. Uh, and it turned out that one of the ladies was very happy that I was there because she just bought this fur coat and her husband didn't know it yet. So it was kind of nice having company in the house when he found out she just bought this coat. Yeah. So I went into the house where they had, I don't know, six or eight kids between them. Uh, they had this big table set up, and they served like a 10-course French dinner with me sitting at the head of the table. I had to have the first serving and the second serving of everything. They treated me like royalty. Um, before the evening was over, the, the, one of the, the men played the saxophone. So he got out his saxophone and uh, played some typical French tunes for me. Uh, and I'd play a little piano, so I played some ragtime, some American stuff for them. And we became great friends. I slept the night on their couch. Uh, the next day, they went, they booked, packed up a whole shopping bag full of groceries for me, uh, took me down to the train station, made sure that I had the right train to go back to Paris and get this ticket endorsed, and then back out to Besançon. And, and stood and waved goodbye as the train pulled out. They spent the day with me. Uh, and we, we corresponded for years and years after that. So, yeah, a lot of people think the French are snooty and aloofish, but let me tell you, they saved me from sleeping on that park bench, and they were great. <laughs> so that's, that's my last story. <laughs> yep. <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> What is the coolest place you've ever said mass at? Okay, yeah, that's a good story. Hagia Sophia, Istanbul. Um, yes. <laughs> you might know the Emperor Constantine moved the, the, <laughs> the capital of the Roman Empire to a city he named after himself, Constantinople, back in the 4th century. Uh, he built a basilica there. Uh, that basilica has been destroyed. It was rebuilt in the 5th, and then it was rebuilt again in the 6th. The church that stands there now is built in the 6th century. Uh, for a 1,000 years, it was our biggest church and our most important church. Uh, if you look at all those early um, councils, Nicaea is right outside of, of Constantinople. There were councils in Constantinople. Uh, Ephesus is not too far from there. It really was, in many ways, the center of the church when Rome was a mess. So, for a 1,000 years... Hagia Sophia, this big basilica in, in Constantinople, was our biggest church. Well, long story short, Mehmet the Conqueror comes in, destroys the city, takes over the church. It's turned into a mosque uh, back in the 1400s. Uh, so for the last 600 years, it was a mosque. Then it was turned into a museum. Uh, so I was traveling solo on this trip, went to Hagia Sophia. Uh, I've got Everything that I need to celebrate Mass, I can carry in my pocket. I've got a tiny little mass kit. I've got a little bitty chalice, and I can put all the prayers on one sheet of paper and everything I need. So I found a dark corner in Hagia Sophia, and I reclaimed it. Yeah. It's ours once again. <laughs> yeah. St. John Chrysostom and St. Gregory Nazianzens were both bishops there. They were praying with me. It was, it was a great feat. <laughs> That's my story. Sorry, I, th I think I misspoke. Uh, what is the coldest place you've ever said, said Mass? <laughs> I've done Mass outdoors in Antarctica. <laughs> I did one up in the Arctic Circle in north of Sweden. Yeah. Yep. I was camping. <laughs> yeah. I did this. There's, there's a wonderful trail in the north of Sweden. It's up in the Arctic Circle. Uh, it's called Kungsladen, and I did, I don't know, 
50, 60 miles on it, I guess, with a friend. We carried a tent and beautiful, beautiful scenery. Lots of reindeer, beautiful scenery. Yep, the mass in Antarctica was overseen by penguins. Yeah, yeah, they were all over the place. That's that. <laughs>